There was a time when the world was so young there had not yet been a sunrise. But even then, there was my brother, my captain, my podcast. Elves have their forests to protect, dwarves their mines, men their fields of grain. But we podcasters have the rings of power to talk about. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Udun, episode 6 of Amazon's Lord of the Rings television show, The Rings of Power. But first, our spoiler warning. We will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far of The Rings of Power, and we will be discussing all published Lord of the Rings materials as they may come up, be they Peter Jackson's films or Tolkien's other entries in the Legendarium. However, we will save speculation based on prior knowledge for the end in a special spoiler section, if you want to remain curious about what comes next. That will come after our Tolkien Tolkien musical break. And just a reminder of some places you may be able to find me and Emily elsewhere outside of my brother, my captain, my podcast. I was recently on the Batting Around podcast, which, yes, it is a baseball podcast. Um, But they were basically doing a heat check on where we are in pop culture with a Star Wars, Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones show all airing at once. So I was able to give them what I felt about them. Let's just say it was a big thumbs up for Star Wars and Game of Thrones. And, well, you'll hear about the Rings of Power takes in a little bit. (laughs) Um, I will also say they are a great podcast to support, especially if um, you are you have leftist or uh, labor based politics. Uh, Their most recent guest on their Patreon is a baseball player, uh, Trevor Hildenberger, and he was part of the push to unionize the minor leagues, which is a huge victory for labor, especially in the sports world. Um, So if any of that interests you, I recommend checking out batting around nice rock and roll yeah and that was a great episode it was lots of fun to listen to and totally parsable for me someone who does not understand baseball at all um and i was in a, a very different world this week the the world of video games um i guested on a friend of the podcast Kiefer's uh, brilliant podcast select and start um talking about the world's best game which may actually get to play on this podcast today uh which is breath of the wild uh, and that was uh, just an absolute delight uh, so go check out Kiefer's podcast over at select and start and lastly i do want to offer a little bit of a mia couple <laughs> me jesus <laughs> my couple <laughs> a mia culpa to the audience because last week i definitely missed a couple big plot points especially with uh Kevin doing demolition in the Numenor docks, I guess. Um, I I don't have much to say other than I apologize that the show is not gripping me to the point where um, I'm able to catch everything. I am trying to take some furious notes while watching, but I get about 20 minutes of decompression time before we start recording. If we miss stuff like that, you can just blame me for that. I will consider myself the recap guy. Um, We appreciate our friends who reached out. Shama, who's one of our best listeners, she pointed out some of the details we missed. And we're open to being corrected or being shown the light in ways that we are clearly not seeing at this point, which includes some of the battles in this episode. But... (laughs) Uh, where do you want to start with this episode, Emily? Oh, uh, God. Dealer's choice. Yeah. Um, okay, actually, let's start on something uh, cheerful and fun. Um, and I think something we may need a klaxon for going forward, which is that we got another flash of upper thigh from a woman character. Uh, so we see quite a lot, actually, of upper thigh from Bronwyn bringing this season's upper thigh count uh, to four. Uh, so for all of the people like me who are absolutely fascinated with this one little bit of... Um, something something going on in the costuming department there uh we are now at number four 
Yeah, the klaxon could either be like, I think the most tasteful version will be like a wolf howl, <laughs> and the least tasteful version would be that Game of Thrones sound clip about always wanting the bad pussy. Uh, I think either of them would be appropriate for this. Oh, holy shit. Yeah, both together. Uh, so, okay, so I had a whole bunch of like totally incoherent notes. Um as I was kind of going through this. And to be honest, like I was having kind of a hard time taking notes on anything because there was not really very much going on in this episode that wasn't what was literally going on on screen, um, which is fine. TV is allowed to do that, I guess, uh, except it's not fine. And I thought this episode sucked. Um, but I think one of the things that might um, bear fruit for us to chat about here, which I feel like was kind of the probably the most like prominent thing in this episode so far is is uh the issue of high definition television uh in the year in the age of streaming in the year of our lord 2022 uh in a world in which um computer graphics uh like cgi generally is, is sort of like uh the kind of be all end all of set design of uh of prop making of in some cases costuming and in movies on tv um i feel like that is kind of a topic that is brought to the fore uh, in this episode in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Because I remember looking at some of the trailers for this show and being like, oh, those orc costumes look really great. And then watching them in the series, I'm like, ooh, they look rubbery as hell yeah. in a way that the Peter Jackson orcs did not, or at least let me say the Lord of the Rings films orcs did not, um, because there's none of that like, like there's cracks and wrinkles in these orc costumes, but they clearly look like rubber yep. as opposed to like the dry skin look of those films yeah and i think this is kind of like true across the board right where there's like a lot of things that so so actually to give it this some context so so back in the back in the day uh, about 10 15 years ago when um tv and and movies uh production started making the switch towards high definition uh, high definition cameras toward using digital uh over over like physical film uh towards uh like um, broadcasting in high definition to to TVs um, and uh, laterally to the internet. Um, there was a kind of stage, a, a, an intermediate stage, intermediary stage, I would say, where um, lots of production companies were struggling with that switch because it totally changes how you have to, for example, light a scene or how you have to handle set design, uh, how you have to handle makeup and, and hair and wigs. Because for the first time uh, in the history of cinema, people are able to see, literally see the pores on actors' faces. Um, and there's so much clarity um, in the image that is, that is projected, the image that is recorded, and the image that is projected. And it took a little bit of time um, for most kind of major production companies to um, kind of get used to that new normal um, and to understand what that new level of detail uh, that was required of high definition uh, filmmaking uh, to, to kind of make sure that, you know, you didn't have stuff in the background that looked like shit. Um, and if you go look at, um, I would actually say new Doctor Who, uh, well, I guess it's not new, uh, but like the, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of the David Tennant era of, of Doctor Who um, is when you really start to see this kind of switch over to high death and what that looks like as the as like BBC Wales was trying to figure out how to handle that in real time. And it's really interesting because you do see a lot of the changes in sort of lighting um, in particular and in, and in stage makeup. Um, and one of the things that I've really found with this series in particular is that a lot of these kind of elements of, um, you know, the props, 
the the costuming in particular, but in this episode especially, the the makeup um feels to me like it's still in that stage where they don't quite understand what they need to do with high definition cameras. Um, like there's a couple scenes where it's either Bronwyn or it's Galadriel. Um, varyingly, the the two of them get these close ups, and you can see the blush caked on their face. Um, and it is it is like obviously quite thick kind of pancake makeup that they've got on there. And and you can see, or you can almost see the sort of brush strokes. And that's the kind of rookie mistake that, you know, we shouldn't be having to see, uh, you know, kind of 12, 15 years on from the HD switch. And um, if they've got sort of a competent team of of creatives working on this. And I think like the rubbery costumes that you're talking about, like Aaron Deers in particular is, is the one that I kept every time I saw it on screen, I was like, God, that really looks bad. Um, and I think the the kind of key problem here is that they're, you know, doing standard definition production quality for a 4k level uh, recording. And I think really what they would benefit from in almost all cases is by just using a lower tier camera. Like don't put the 4k cameras on this set get a slightly shittier quality camera, like chalk it up to the fact that this is a fantasy and that you want the grit and grime and, and save yourself from, you know, like rubbery shitty costumes and like caked on awful sort of max factor looking makeup. I just think they're, they're trying to do like too much of the high tech and not really thinking about like what the like necessary kind of implications, uh, it's always sunny me, the implications, uh, of that technology like actually is. Yeah, what I was going to say is we because for the most part, we and the people who are likely listening to us, we're end consumers. And in the end, like we only really think about 4K as a finished product and not as a methodology of production that you have to shoot towards in the process of creating your show and not just shoot towards in terms of camera work and the type of cameras you use, but also in terms of what kind of fidelity and detail you're going to add to prop work and costumes and all that stuff. Um, Like an analogy I think of is your home internet, Um, because you might be getting, let's say, one terabyte or a thousand kilobytes per second, like coming in through your modem uh, via your cable service. And that's great or whatever. But your router has a certain like throttle on it. It only has a certain bandwidth. Your Ethernet cord only has a certain bandwidth. Your laptop only has a certain bandwidth. So if you have a bunch of stuff that um, only goes to max like 333 kilobytes per second, getting that a thousand kilobytes per second from your modem isn't going to do anything because all the other downstream technology is going to wash out the advantage and that speed and it's going to come in just at whatever your computer can handle. Nice. This is where I see that the production of these are made, they know, oh, the final product's going to be on Amazon Prime or on Netflix or HBO Max and that should be in 4K, but are they really is every part of the assembly line in sync with what they want their finished output to be? Because otherwise, then all that fidelity that you're trying to get in the end product is not being like championed in the points of getting it onto the camera in the first place. Yeah, that that's a that that's a really brilliant way of explaining that as well. And I think you know what, um, because we ha- we do nothing on this podcast but draw comparisons to Star Wars. Um, I think actually Star Wars in particular, um, by virtue of the kind of three uh, eras in which it was kind of at the top of the line for uh, like movie production, um, is a really good kind of uh, like like reference point for um, the for dealing with, for example, film versus digital. Um, the uh, original Star Wars trilogy was 
was shot on film, obviously. And and if you go back and listen to how um, all of the kind of creative crew members are thinking about what it means to shoot on film and what that either enables them or disables them from doing, you get a really clear sense of the kind of thought process that you should be having vis-a-vis camera work and vis-a-vis the, the, the medium onto which the, onto which you are recording your show. And, and one of the things that, that is really interesting about the original Star Wars trilogy is that they knew they could get away with certain practical effects processes because the film grain on 35 millimeter film, well, all film really, but 35 millimeter in particular, um, would give them, would buy them the leeway they needed. Um, so like when, you know, in when on Tatooine in the first act, when Luke is zooming across the, the dune sea uh, and in his little speeder, his little red speeder, um, they just put mirrors in front of the, the wheels of this thing that they rigged up to be the vehicle. Um, so the cameras only see what the mirrors are reflecting back, which is the sand around it. Um, and so we as the viewers think that it's, uh, it is literally flying and it's not, it's just you know, driving along with a mirror to hide the the marks, but on a on high definition digital, they wouldn't have been able to put pull that off in the same way without going in and doing a little bit of kind of uh, tidying around the edges. But because film has that kind of lower um, kind of uh, not quality, but it has that kind of graininess to it that that kind of allows these not mistakes, but these kind of seams um, in the the world of practical effects. We never pick up on it. Now, obviously, in, in the 1990s, uh, George Lucas went back and did the specialized uh, editions and definitely did some touching up there. Um, but if you go back and, and if you manage to get your hands on by whatever means necessary, uh, the Star Wars 4K77 project, which is a 4K scan of the Laserdisc version of the original run of uh, Star Wars from 1977, as people saw it in cinemas. Um, if you go back and watch that, you can really see that, that they are thinking about what film as a medium does for them, like as a physical medium does for them in terms of the things they're allowed to do. And then if you compare that to what they're doing on the Rings of Power now, where it's not clear they're actually thinking about what digital means and what streaming means, and and it's not clear that they've had this kind of conversation with their props department, with their set department, with their costumes department, and certainly not with their hair and makeup department about what will and won't be visible and what will and won't work. I think it it, it kind of sours me a bit because I'm like, this is not competent at all. Um, this is not competent. And in, um, you know, if if my the industry that I work in uh, was kind of analogized to, to film, this is the kind of shit that would get people fired. Uh, and so seeing this on, on this and knowing what the price tag is on this, and then also seeing people kind of talk about, especially with regards to the lighting, uh, talk about it like it's some sort of like consumer-based problem, like, you know, my, my fucking $2,000 laptop made for video editors is somehow not like calibrated correctly for watching video. Like that shit kind of drives me insane. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to talk about that a little bit because we, we're going to start talking about the battle that occurs in this episode here in a minute. I'm sorry if it's taking a little long to get to the fireworks factory, <laughs> which, hey, that's a problem the show has, too. But it <laughs> like I, I absolutely agree with you. Like we can't it can't be the fault of the technology. And if that's the case, that's also pretty fuck. I, I don't know if I want to call it classist, but it's bullshit if you need to have a $2,000 piece of equipment to watch a show. Yeah. Um, I don't think that needs to be a requirement. It's an accessibility issue. Like in the truest sense of the yeah. word accessibility, that is an issue. Mm -hmm. Like I, I couldn't see much of this episode. I had to literally move into another room, change the lighting. And I do want to say part of this is also a little bit on the manufacturers in, in so far as your TV out of the box, if you bought it in the last, let's say seven to 10 years, the settings it comes with 
are settings designed for it to be taken out of the box and put in a Best Buy showroom. So it's assuming high white lights, high ceilings, and just general like, you know, blinding visibility. Like you've been in a Best Buy, you can, <laughs> you can see everything in a Best Buy. Everything's like super bright. And they calibrate the TVs for that. And then they also generally put on motion smoothing, um, which is only there just so it looks different. So it's like, oh, that looks fancier because, you know, you can see, you know, people move in a different way than you did if you saw it on film or whatever. Um, so there, some of this is also on the manufacturer, you know, trying to gear it towards how to sell them as opposed to what's best for um, the people actually watching it in the end. But yeah, it's like, it, I don't, I don't even know how to express it. It's just, it's frustrating that it, it shouldn't be the consumer's job. I'm, I'm surprised that these episodes don't end with click here to buy a TV from Amazon yeah. that you can see this in full. Like it really, <laughs> I, I think me and you disagree a little bit on this. For the most part, I'm pretty okay with the Lord of the Rings 4K um, upscales on HBO. Mm. I don't think they're perfect, but I think generally they look good yeah. um, because because they put a lot of effort into the detail work because the orcs look really good in the 4K version. Um, some of the set work looks really great. But still, despite having watched it in 4K probably half a dozen times since it released last year in 4K... Nothing was more visually arresting than when I went to my local indie last summer and watched the two towers on 35 millimeter. Yeah. Like it's like it's very clear this is how it's meant to be seen. Yeah. Um, and it's just a shame that we've kind of gone away from this. Uh, it's funny coming up last night. I watched Last Action Hero, which is literally about like old theaters closing as a Sony or Lowe's Cineplex moves in. And this is before the time of digital filmmaking, but it very much feels like at the end of the 90s was kind of like a time where cinema was going to change, you know, forever if going from a to a different format. And I just, you can really see like the seams with this new show, um, which if you don't mind, we'll maybe try to talk about the episode here for a little bit. This, I, I feel like this episode is basically them trying to do the two towers yeah. um, in full, or at least like the last hour and a half of two towers everything preceding the battle is a i guess they open with a big tower 9-11 set piece um but then there's a big like kind of rohan before the urukai arrive scene and then basically everything that occurs in the battle in the village feels like various takes on various parts of the helm's deep battle that we saw in two towers um can i just jump in real quick here because the tower explosion at the start of this and the kind of prologue to this episode drives me fucking crazy right um because there's a really so it explodes in the same way um that that uh Baradora explodes and uh return of the king like on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with that, except that the reason that Baradura explodes on the way that it does in Return of the King is because it's a very specific response to the environment in which that movie was being released, right? And they had to go back and handle, redo how Baradura collapsed because 9-11 had just happened. So they were being very specific about the way that it exploded, which is that it had to blow from the middle rather than from the top or from the bottom, and it had to blow outwards and then down so that it, it would in no way evoke 9-11. Now, it kind of does anyways, and of course, in a film series uh, that includes a book called The Two Towers, you're not going to be able to avoid that. But they had to go back and think very like clearly about what is this sort of supernatural way that we can make this explosion have no relationship to 9-11. And they're like, fine, the 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 way that we're going to justify this is we're going to say that Sauron's power was holding Baradur together. And so when Sauron is defeated via the ring, uh, it explodes outwards from the middle. And that's not what's happening with this tower, right? This tower is literally only exploding outwards from the middle because Return of the King did it. 
that is a bullshit reason for anything in cinema. Um, and there's this like story that people were kind of trying to hype up, which I thought was stupid anyways, but they were like, oh, Peter Jackson was barred from the set. That shows that this uh, show sucks. Like, no, Peter Jackson shouldn't have been on the, the, the set anyways. That's stupid to begin with. And that's not a reason for the show to suck when it has a million and one other reasons. But I understand now why they didn't want Peter Jackson on the set, because if he'd stepped foot in, on there and anything had gone wrong with New Line, this whole fucking show is a huge liability for them in terms of copyright. Like, I would not want to be Amazon's lawyers in a courtroom where New Line is going, hey, you stole our fucking movie, because they just have to run some of these scenes side by side with the original with the the Peter Jackson movies and that's it case closed anyway sorry uh, onwards to Home's Deep <laughs> yeah so just to kind of describe uh the orcs led by Benjamin Stark raid the tower that they were uh they were all taking refuge in when they arrive no one's there and then Aaron Deer pops out to do like a set off of like a Rube Goldberg machine of things leading to the tower collapse. Um, it would have been super funny if the tower collapsed like the other way and absolutely no one died. Uh, but eh, what can you do? <laughs> um, and then he kind of retreats like they had all like kind of returned to the village like that they were ori originally in, which I'm not sure if that makes as much sense as them just keeping putting distance between them and the orcs, especially orcs that possibly can't travel during the day. Um, I know that people generally sleep at night, so it's kind of like a give or take or whatever, but um, it's just, it was all clearly in setup. They wanted to open this episode with a bang and I, I guess mission accomplished yeah. um, to stick with the George Bush era analogies. <laughs> and then uh, kind of what happens is then we see them kind of fortify the village. It's in not in an affectionate way. It's giving like seven samurai vibes or whatever. Yeah. It's like now we have to like arm everyone. It's very similar to what the Mandalorian did in season one, episode four, an episode of TV. I actually like better than this as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's a pretty standard trope. And I don't mind like that specifically. It's not like seven Akira Kurosawa has like a copyright on that. Uh, but it just it feels like a remix of other stuff I've seen without really adding something to it. And that's even before getting into how much they are straight up cribbing lines and emotional beats from the two towers. Yeah. I mean, this is like, I was half expecting there to be some little kid who like didn't have a sword or something that like Bronwyn or Aaron Deer was going to be like, let me see your sword and then do all the weird shit that Aragorn does at Helm's Deep. Cause it's like, it's so obviously a carbon copy and like they you know there's kind of an old joke in in like fan communities online where like when fan fiction writers try and get a book deal they just file off the serial numbers on their fanfic which is like to say they change all of the things that relate to the the like um original kind of work that they are riffing on in their fanfic and then shop it to uh literary agents and this feels like they're like trying to file off the serial numbers but they're doing it with like a cvs brand fucking nail file and they also gave up five seconds into doing it and we're like this is fine sell it so what kind of proceeds here is it's one battle but it's kind of like trying to trying to do the minas tirith helms deep thing where it's kind of a couple individual set pieces and a couple lulls and then you know another big set piece which i don't think is bad you know that's a nice way to pace it without like overwhelming the audience but those other battles and the films um they have such clear geography and character stakes that like everything that kind of flows makes sense in a way. Whereas I have some questions about why all the non-combatants were just sitting in the tavern, which is probably <laughs> centrally located. And if you can corner that, there's like no escape route. Yeah. Um, 
And it just becomes very convenient, like when people are in danger, when people are not. Um, it doesn't feel like it logically flows from the actual military action. And I don't need it to be like, I don't know, Battleship Potemkin and like <laughs> I see all the details or anything like that. But it, it, it like Helm's Deep works because you know exactly like, OK, the main wall was breached. OK, they're holding the gate. OK, it's everyone's stuck inside the Hornburg. Like yeah. it all kind of makes sense. And it's all set up very nicely by having Theoden and Aragorn walking the walls beforehand yeah. and being like, we'll, you know, fortify here. We'll bar the gates here. We'll put archers here. And here it just feels like none of that thought was put into it. One thing that stuck out to me is at some point when the orcs finally arrive at the village, um, there are archers on the rooftops and that's all cool, you know, sniper position, take the higher ground. That makes a lot of sense. But then orcs are able to come in behind them and just uh, start stabbing archers in the back, yeah. which works great for video games. But like in any kind of thoughtful military operation, you would have someone behind them yeah. <laughs> or you would have you would make sure that no one can get in behind. There would be some kind of defense, but it's just like, well, we need to do this thing where first they ambush the orcs, but then we need to turn the tide. And the best way to do that is something that, again, I'm not judging it on how well the military strategy is, but my mind shouldn't be wandering to them because I'm either struggling to connect with these characters and or struggling to literally see what I'm watching on the television. Yeah. I think this is all like the, these writers have written themselves into a corner and then been like, oh, well, you know, we're stuck in this corner. So really the limitations of the show are based on the fact that we're stuck in this corner. But it's like, dude, you built the fucking walls like you built the fucking walls that have now trapped you in here. Just unbuilt them like you are in control here. Why have you why have you boxed yourself in here? This is so weird. And like, I think you are right that like the and I think this is kind of my gripe with the whole thing, which is that like they could have like fucked up military strategy who cares like the problem is not that the military strategy is fucked up the problem is that we're thinking about it at all and like you know to draw a comparison to um andor of all things just kidding not of all things because it's my favorite thing to talk about right now and mm -hmm. um, there's a bit in the most recent episode and i'm just gonna try and do this as spoiler free as possible where there's a discussion about like the specific kind of um military like the specific tactic that they're used going to use to break into uh something uh, an enemy's sort of area uh and the way that they're talking about it um i saw someone online being like all oh, this is insane there's no way you'd do this and i was like i could not have even come up with thinking about it like that because i was so engrossed by the things that were going on there was the detail work of the miniatures that they were using there was the like really good and tight interactions between the characters that were revealing about the characters more than the plot and um, but also about the plot um, and then there was the sort of sense that like this was an important thing that was going to lead to something that was also important and all of this episode i'm like i don't get why this is important i don't get like i don't care about these guys in this village um at all I, I feel no emotional connection to them and also the show doesn't because they're killing them off like it doesn't mean anything at all and there's this like whole thing where the you know the stakes are meant to be raised but i can't remember what the stakes are and like unlike with helms deep where it's very clear that like this is kind of the uh like the you know the life or death moment for for rohan as a kingdom and and therefore for the ring war as a whole like this, I'm just like, why are we fighting here? Who are we fighting? This is the fucking, like, Iraq war of TV shows. Uh, damn, that's that's pretty scathing. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's good. It's one of those things that it's important because the audience knows this is going to be Mordor. Yeah. It's, it's something that, and it's not playing on that expectation at all. Guess what? At the end, Mount Doom erupts and, you know, we can see how this land is going to start being covered with ash and suit and all that kind of stuff 
But it's really funny. Like, there's even a point where Bronwyn, I think, is talking to Theo, um, and she's literally like saying Sam lines from the Two Towers <laughs> about how the shadow is a passing thing or a small and passing thing. And like, I don't hate that dialogue, but like, it's not giving, it's not putting it into like a new context for me or showing how that also applies in a different scenario because it is literally the same exact scenario in which Sam was talking about it. Granted, he wasn't at Helm's Deep, but like there's a reason that dialogue is overlaid with what's happening at Helm's Deep. Yeah. Um, so it just feels like, again, uh, more like copy and paste than it does like, oh, we're picking up a thematic meme from that original trilogy and then transforming it or recontextualizing it in a new format um, so we can actually say something more about what's going on or what's going on with these characters. Yeah. And I think this kind of leads in like really well to, to this kind of issue that I've had with this whole show, right? Which is that it, um, it, it can't take a position and it on like this kind of issue of like Easter egg culture or trivia culture, because on the one hand, right? Like it is, it is, abundantly clear at this point, I would say inarguably clear that they have not actually read uh, what they are claiming to have adapted and they have not actually paid attention to it. Or if they have, then we are in the worst case scenario of um, they have read it, they have paid attention to it and are directly contravening the only bits of canon that they actually get to use. Um, so so we know that they don't really give a shit about the books. They, are, they care more about the Peter Jackson films. Um, but they're still courting that book-based trivia stuff because if you turn on that stupid x-ray thing on the amazon ui they'll they'll have occasional trivia bits in in the side and they'll cite book and chapter at you and half the time it's book and chapter for like things that are insane interpretations there was one a, a couple episodes ago that just drove me insane where it was like um you know something about the orcs going out in the sunlight uh and they forgot to take out take out that trivia bit at the right moment. So they're like, oh, the orcs, uh, according to book three, chapter six, um, the orcs, you know, die when they touch the sunlight. And then it was kind of overlapping into a scene where there's an orc cutting about in the sunlight. Um, and they've got a couple of them in, in here. And I'm like, right, if 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 you were saying that, like, um, this show doesn't really actually have a relationship to to the books, which which is what this show itself is telling us, then you need to cut this bullshit with the trivia and, and citing chapter and verse and, you know, throwing in all of these Easter eggs that don't actually mean anything because what you are doing is courting this kind of discourse on one side and then kind of, you know, producing this ammunition that says, fuck, fuck this kind of discourse, fuck anybody who is trying to do this Easter egg stuff. And like, you can't play both sides like this because all it does is show that, you know, you are kind of weak on, on two sides, right? Like you wouldn't try and like, because this TV show I think is is uh, kind of obsessed in some ways with treating the audience like the enemy. And you wouldn't want to court uh, uh, an enemy on two sides of a battlefield. You want them right in front of you. You want them only fighting you on one side. You don't want to open two fronts of your own accord. And it seems like they've opened two fronts of their own accord. And I, for the life of me, cannot understand why they've done it. Yeah, literally in the two towers, Faramir says war will come to men on both fronts. And that's a bad thing. Why are you opening yeah. yourself yeah. up to that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like the the one thing that was kind of killing me with this as well is like, I, I think it's kind of interesting um, vis-a-vis all of the Peter Jackson stuff, right? Because like the Peter Jackson movies um, do include kind of Easter eggs of sorts. Like, you know, my, the one that I think is kind of most beautifully done is when Saruman is explaining the origin of the Arakai. Um, and and that is a direct reference to the Silmarillion. Uh, and that is like Easter eggy um, in that like if you've read the, the books, then you'll be like, hey, I know what that is. Um, and if you've never read the books, if you're just watching this for the first time, 
It's a cool bit of information that adds to the world, but doesn't really change anything. Whereas this whole show seems to be oriented around what's the next reference that we can drop? What's the next little like nod or wink that we can include? And there's not really any kind of thought about the connective tissue between these things and whether or not these references that they are including actually add to the overall like value and weight of the story that they're trying to tell. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you don't mind, I'm going to go on a little bit of digression about Easter eggs, uh, just because I'm a little bit frustrated with the discourse surrounding Andor as well. Sorry, this is now an Andor podcast. Um, actually, not sorry. <laughs> but like, there's so much debate about Andor is good because it doesn't have Easter eggs. And then people are like, oh, it has Easter eggs. All yeah. Star Wars has Easter eggs. And I, I think that's kind of missing like the bigger picture here. So I want to talk about the meme of the Easter egg. And for those who don't listen to podcasts on Frontiers, when I say meme, I don't just mean like internet jokes. I mean like a piece of culture that gets passed on. Think of it nice. as when you have children, you're passing your genes on to the next generation. Um, memes are basically the cultural version of that, whether it's art, religion, music, whatever. It's something that's passed down as a cultural unit as opposed to a genetic unit. Going back maybe 30 to 40 years, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when Indy and Sala are trying to raise the Lost Ark out of the Well of Souls, like there's a drawing of C-3PO and R2-D2 on the wall. That's an Easter egg. It has nothing to do with the story. It's completely backgrounded. It's not foregrounded. Sala doesn't look at it and, you know, like smile or wink at the audience or anything like that. It's just a thing where if the audience sees it, it's like, oh, yes, it's because George Lucas has a hand in both. Even like, say, Spider-Man 2 by Sam Raimi, there's a point where they're trying to name, you know, Dr. Octopus and they're going through names. And at one point, uh, Ted Raimi says Dr. Strange, <laughs> which is an Easter egg, too. It might not sound like it, but like Sam Raimi was not going to make a Dr. Strange movie. There was no multiverse coming for the Sam Raimi <laughs> Spider-Man movies. It's just like, oh, this is another character that the Spider-Man creator, Steve Ditko, also created under the Marvel banner. So it kind of makes sense to mention him just because certain fans like me would be like, ah, that's cute. But then it moves on and has no importance to the story. Easter eggs now almost functionally are hard to exist in multi like franchise storytelling because it's hard to distinguish what is world building and what is just an Easter egg because now everything is connected. And one thing that might be say an Easter egg at one point, like in Iron Man two, which is before the MCU became a permanent going concern. There is a Wakanda like somewhere in the background on a map. And for at that time, it's like, okay, I don't know if they'll ever get to a black Panther movie, but Hey, it's, you know, it's there. It retroactively became like world building, where it started out as the Easter egg when they actually moved towards including T'Challa and his whole thing in it. Hmm. And like, I feel like people are talking about Easter eggs in relation to Star Wars and the Rings of Power in the sense that it's something I recognize from elsewhere. Yeah. And that's not exactly what an Easter egg is. Like, if Andor is in a space, is in like a spaceport or whatever, and we see a recognizable ship or a type of ship that's recognizable. I don't know that that's an Easter egg per se. Yeah. Um, I think that's just world building or filling the world with things we know belong in this world. Um, if there was, say, like a picture of Indiana Jones, uh, actually, in fact, there is like in the I don't want to get into and or spoilers here, <laughs> but there is like a carbonite Indiana Jones whip at one point. And that's a legitimate Easter egg. It's yeah. there if you notice it, but it has no value. Um, so I think I, I guess this has nothing to do with rings of power, but it's just like I think the way 
we, and by we, I mean we collectively, not me and Emily, because we've never been wrong about anything. Yeah, correct. Uh, we're kind of straining <laughs> like what the definition of Easter egg is. But I think ultimately the point is Easter eggs are not meant to be foregrounded. They're not mm-hmm. meant to be pivotal. Um, they're not meant to be like, oh, that's a hint at the next Disney Plus streaming series or the next Amazon Prime Disney series. Amazon Prime Disney series. What am I even <laughs> saying here? Uh, it, but, you know, it's not... There are, they are different things, and I think people are just kind of mashing them all up just because they are things that they recognize from elsewhere. And I just yeah. wanted to get that out because I've been frustrated with some of the discourse around it. No, I think that's like a really good kind of definitional health check as well. And, and I think it's also it, – it, it is really relevant to the Rings of Power as well because I think there's this kind of cultural um, – uh, misunderstanding of the world building that Tolkien does, um, and I know you know I, I have been a kind of vocal uh, advocate on on this podcast of, of of the fact that Tolkien is not a verbose writer; he is a dense writer, and those are two different things. He doesn't do a thousand pages when one page would suffice; he does one page that would encompass a thousand pages. Anyways, um, one of the things that I think kind of gets lost in in the understandings of, of J.R. Tolkien's writing is, is this idea that the details that he included are, are details for detail's sake. And they're not. Um, and, and, you know, you know, maybe towards the sort of latter part of his life, the last 10, 15 years of his life, maybe he did kind of tend towards that as he was reacting a bit more strongly towards his critics. Um, but the the kind of core details that make up, you know, the, the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, and the Silmarillion are details that exist because they serve the purpose of the story. They serve the narrative in very clear and specific ways. Um, Numenor itself, which we now see on screen here, exists as a detail in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and for all of us who were born after the publication of the Silmarillion in the 1970s, um, you know, Numenor was more fleshed out. But for everybody who read The Lord of the Rings from its publication date in the 1950s until the publication of the Silmarillion, Numenor was just a detail that existed to have a, uh, a, a sense of, to give a sense of sort of uh, ancientry, to give a sense of grounding, to give a sense of stakes, like cultural, emotional, and spiritual stakes to the journeys that the various men characters are on. It was not just there for the sake of saying Numenor has a Wikipedia page there or an Encyclopedia Britannica page there now. Um, and, and a lot of people, I think, kind of tend towards saying that the details that Tolkien included are just details because, you know, they're kind of a texture that don't serve a narrative purpose, but they actually do. And I think like kind of the problem that we're seeing in this TV show, um, particularly vis-a-vis the language use, is that they assume that the details that are included, the, the quote unquote facts that are included in Tolkien's writing are just there because they're kind of fun to play with um, and not because they're actually used to say something deeper about the various cultures, people, events in the stories. Um, and, you know, you, you see, well, I'm going to try and not think too long or hard about this, but, you know, the, the way that the language is used, Quenya, Sindarin, and then later the Black speech, which they have foregrounded mostly by virtue of Adar in this episode, um, repeatedly correcting Galadriel, uh, encouraging her to use the black speech word Uruk instead of orc, uh, or uh, or the, the orcs themselves, uh, bearingly referring to Adar as father or Adar. Um, you know, they're, they're foregrounding the language, um, and the language is um, in this series, but they haven't actually thought about what the languages are, what the linguistic divergence is, what they actually tell us about the stories. Like, you know, the the fact of the matter is that the Noldor, Galadriel's people, didn't have a word for orc when they came to Middle-earth because only the Sindar elves had seen orcs before. The Noldor had been safely kept away from the orcs. So Quenya didn't have originally 
a, a, a word for orc. It was a it was a loner word from Sindarin, and one of the few words to have crossed between Sindarin to Quenya rather than the reverse. And that tells us an immense amount about the Noldor, right? The fact that they didn't have a word for orc tells us a huge amount. Um, and and the fact that uh, you know that they had to pick it up from the Sindar, and the fact that Quenya was sort of banned in, in, in Beleriand, um, all of these things are details that add to the story and add to our understanding of these these characters and these people. The orcs going back and forth between Adar and father and uh, and Adar himself using Quenya when it is very, very likely that he was actually an elf of uh, of Beleriand and therefore a Sindar elf. Um, and then swapping between uh, Quenya and Westron, which is the common tongue, and then occasionally the black speech. This is all just adding in things for the sake of adding in things to pretend that you've done more than read the Wikipedia page. It's not using these details to enrich and enliven the story. And I just think it's such, it such an abject shame in a in a show that the showrunners build as being quote intimately connected to the books because it, it, it's just not yeah and just uh i'll fill in some gaps here in terms of the plot just so we're not <laughs> completely missing it but so what what happens is uh af so during the village attack at one point the orcs are able to kind of take control of the village and then they realize all the like civilians, I guess, are in the tavern. And we see that Bronwyn has gotten hurt. Like she's like bleeding out. And this is where Adar comes in and starts asking the boy, uh, where is, or that he starts asking the village in, on wholesale, like, where is the thing we are looking for? You know, you have a thing. Um, eventually, Theo offers it up to him. And then uh, this kind of looks like the orcs are kind of sitting pretty right now. Um, but then um, we get a charge of Numenor. So the only other plot thread that exists in this episode is we do get a little bit earlier, a Sealdor, a Lendil, and Galadriel on a boat. Um, and they're setting sails for the Southlands or wherever you want to call this, Tir Harad. And they basically set up a huge cavalry charge. Um, I'm glad they didn't like completely do it. Oh, they show up at the last second and save the day. They at least show us that they're coming and we see them a horse and they actually paid for horses. So I guess nice job. <laughs> but um, they show up and they kind of turn the tides on the battle. Like I said, it kind of ebbs and flows who's kind of in charge. But before they're able to arrive and run down all the orcs, um, Adar goes to Waldreg, like the one like human uh traitor i guess i don't know if there were other ones i only really picked him out amongst the crowd so i know there were some other people in there and gives him essentially the real like blade or hilt or whatever the broken evil blade the blood sword as i've been calling it um and then he kind of wraps up just some other weapon and axe and keeps it on his own person adar does so that when he is eventually seized and taken captive by the new minorians who come in and kind of wash the battlefield away, not unlike, say, Gandalf in the <laughs> Rohirrim in Helm's Deep, uh, when he is eventually captured, which happens after a fairly decent-looking, uh, you know, horse chase scene with him, Galadriel, and Halbrand. Um, they take him captive. Um, Galadriel's about to kill him before Halbrand stops her. And at this point, or do, do I have it the other way around? I can't remember. I think this point, uh, Galadriel stops Halbrand from killing him because she wants him alive to learn more about the enemy. Oh God, I forgot they swap. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Later on when they're interrogating Adar, they actually wrap him up in the barn where they found the blood sword in, in the first place. 
Um, they um, Galadriel's basically on the verge of killing him before Halbrand at this point steps in, and he's the one who stops her this time from killing him. Uh, so I just wanted to connect those dots so we're not just completely aligning the episode, which was mostly our plan, but um, uh. this way we can't be delisted from <laughs> Lord of the Rings recap list, I guess. Yeah. Well, there's also, so there's kind of two bits, uh, three bits now that I've remembered that they swap positions. So right when Galadriel, right when this kind of horse chase starts with Galadriel and Adar and, and, and Halbrand, there's this bit where Galadriel goes, you know, swooping by on her horse doing all this stupid horse choreography. Um, and, and I shit you not, Theo looks at her and goes, who is that? And Arondir goes, um, she's the, the commander of the Northern Armies. Galadriel and they both look at her and smile and I'm like you people fucking suck for putting this in like that is the most shit ass kind of don't forget that Galadriel's important I don't trust you as the audience because I think you're all fucking stupid so I need you to remember that Galadriel's important and cool because nothing in the show can speak for itself like it would be like I don't know Marvel Marvel does this quite a lot and and now admittedly I haven't seen a Marvel movie since uh Infinity War but like they tended to do that where they would be like they would have someone basically go, by God, it's Superman, um, except for Marvel. So by God, it's Spider-Man. Um, and everyone would be like, that's how we know that Spider-Man is important. Um, so they do that. And that was like, fuck you guys for including that. Um, but then they do this bit where Adar is constantly correcting Gladriel, being like, uh, we prefer Uruk uh, instead of Orc. Like, dude, who gives a fuck? Um and and they go back and forth on this, where like she keeps saying orc and he keeps going uruk. But it's so strange that they would choose to like emphasize this linguistic bit of politics for all of the reasons that I just spoke about earlier. But also like in this one particular moment as well, because like this dude knows that he's one, right? And like Galadriel doesn't need to know that she's lost until the moment that literally the mountain explodes, but they keep playing this guy. Like he's giving her all of the kind of seeds to realize that like she's fucked. And she just looks like a moron for not getting it. Like she just looks in that like quote unquote interrogation scene. She just looks like a fucking idiot the whole way through. And it's so inconsistent with this characterization of her where like her entire arc is meant to be Gladriel is the only smart one in Middle Earth right now because all of the other people are blinded by the fact that they think that like Sauron is dead. Um, and, you know, she may not have gotten the fact that Sauron himself is alive, correct, but she has gotten that someone is alive doing bad things. And then to get her into this interrogation room and be like, but actually she's still an idiot. I'm like, what? is happening here what is going on and then we get to this weird thing where they're obviously trying to set up a romance between Halbrand and Galadriel uh, and Halbrand is a totally show invented character and I'm like this is why we need Celeborn because this dynamic that they're manufacturing between Galadriel and and Halbrand is almost spot like like line for line Galadriel's dynamic with Celeborn and I'm just like, this is just another one of these instances where they've done something dumb for no, like, understandable reason. They've shoehorned in something in a, a you know, they, they painted themselves into this box that that they didn't need to do. Um, and then I'm just sitting here going, but if they'd actually paid attention to the source material they're allegedly adapting, they would have had a much easier time of this and this whole plot wouldn't have looked so fucking pedestrian. And instead they were like, we're just going to, you know, fuck it, we'll do it live. Um, and, and it's just leading to cell phone after cell phone. 
Yeah, um, I, I, I was going to say, I want to pivot to like a secret Caliborn watch. Um, I kind of <laughs> want this just to go completely off the rails. And the Silmaril that's like peeing on the stones and turning them to Mithril. <laughs> I want Galadriel to get one and shove it down Halbrand's throat and it transform him into Caliborn. And then, I don't know. But all Love of it. that sounds like it would be really lovely to watch. As <laughs> yeah. um, I do want to actually say right here, right now, that... I think this was my favorite episode <laughs> so far, yeah. uh, just because there was stuff happening pretty much at all points. I can't say I could always see the stuff that was happening or that I liked the stuff that was happening. But if anything, at the point where I am with the show, I'd rather see these people doing crazy horse tricks than trying to sit, hear them do the politicking Game of Thrones palace intrigue has really been grating for me. Not yeah. even grating, it's just been boring. Like I lose interest in it because I kind of know what they're what it's building towards and they're all their dialogue is about ooh hoo hoo you know what we're building towards so we're gonna yeah. talk about it obliquely. Um so at least this had some action and I was thinking there's this point where Galadriel when she arrives she does this really cool like hang off the side of our horse and like Twice. cut off a couple guys' heads. It's like really cool. And I was thinking wow Imagine how much I would be freaking out if they hadn't spent like five minutes every episode reminding us that Galadriel can do like weird sword stuff. Yeah. Like you do it once and it's like, okay, she is a commander. We know that she's got some moxie. But then if you kind of sit on that and then she arrives and this is supposed to be like kind of the climax of this episode. And she, if she starts doing Legolas shit, I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, that, that'd be cool. But because we had to spend 10 minutes every episode, like don't, don't forget Galadriel's really good at fighting. It would have been so much cooler for this to be like a big deal for her. But now it just feels like Galadriel action sequence number eight. Yeah. Um, which also gets me into Aaron Deere doing a roundhouse kick, which <laughs> Like, again, like, that was actually, aside from the lighting, which I feel like I say all the time, was, like, a fairly well-shot sequence in the sense that they didn't go too hard on shaky cam. There were no cuts. Like, here, you actually see two people fighting, and the orc was, like, a dude in a costume. It wasn't, like, Azog from The Hobbit, so it's, like, a CGI <laughs> thing. So it's, like, okay, there is some work there. It's actually a disservice to the actors and the stunt performers to light, light it so poorly um, yeah. so that you can't really even enjoy it because I... There was some good stuff in there, but he does a roundhouse kick, and I'm like, good lord. <laughs> yeah. Um, just like, if if you want to inc incorporate roundhouse kicks into your Lord of the Rings things, that's fine, but the way Peter Jackson did it with, like, his Legolas sicko shit is, like, there was a slow, slow escalation of it, and it clearly was meant to say, oh, Legolas isn't like the rest of them, and it really works, because there's only really one elf you have to worry about during that entire trilogy. Um, yeah. No offense, Hugo Weaving or Kate Blanchett, <laughs> but when you have whole armies of elves doing it, or whole armies of elves, but only one person is actually doing it, I don't actually know what it's telling me about the person or the culture that it's supposed to be a part of. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is actually like a really good point as well. Um, it, 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 like both in terms of the the kind of uh, you know the uselessness of incorporating this kind of choreography that doesn't actually say anything. It's you know it's fighting for the sake of fighting and violence and spectacle for the sake of violence and spectacle instead of in service of anything, which is actually funny because that links to Kurosawa and and uh, you know his kind of incorporation of gorier and more brutal kind of work and and cinema ultimately kicked off this trend and he did it to be like God isn't this shit fucked up that we can see all this blood and. Like, like, isn't this a good reminder that violence is bad? And then all filmmakers subsequent to that were like, makes people cool, looks cool, got it, good. Um, but the other bit is the, the you know, the bad lighting as a disservice to the actors. I think that's really spot on. And I think, you know, we won't have the time to go through this in any real depth in this episode. But 
Um, there was a really great movie, uh, actually kind of a remake of sorts, a, a follow-up um, to a, a much earlier horror film called Candyman that came out this year, um, last year rather. Um, and it was it was great. I love it. I think the haters are all wrong about it. It, it was a really, really good and thoughtful movie and also very spooky. Um, and it featured a 99% black cast, but the lighting was awful. They could not light their black actors because they were trying to still light for a Hollywood that was entirely white. And that shit doesn't fly in a world in which you are casting black actors for the screen. Now, if you're just doing black actors as the kind of background sort of like mammy type characters where it doesn't really like matter to the filmmakers who are all racist anyways, whether or not you actually see what the black actors are doing, then like whatever, carry on with the style. But when you're doing stuff like Candyman, where you've got black actors first and foremost, like prominent on the screen, you have to light them correctly. And I just find it incredibly grating that all of the scenes that I find the hardest to see are actually Aaron Deere scenes. Like they have always got him running around in the dark. They never have him lit correctly, even when he is in the light. And I'm like, man, this stuff, like, that, like this is 2022. Like I know we actually haven't really progressed all that far um, in 99% of ways, but like, man, this shit really doesn't cut it like here and now. And like, I think the fact that like there's there's kind of not really been any sort of um, awareness of the fact that this kind of technical incompetency is is not a neutral thing. It is not a morally and politically and ideologically neutral thing. This failure to light actors, particularly black actors, correctly does actually come from a place of like white supremacy and art. Now, I'm not saying the lighting director or the lighting team are all, you know, clan members um, and, you know, they're out burning crosses every Saturday night or whatever it is. But there is a, you know, ideology works on art and the system of art and the, the industry of the, you know, the movie industry in a very specific way. And I think the fact that this hasn't been addressed um, in a more systemic way, both like in the industry, but in this show in particular, is just part of one of these things that just makes me go, mm, come on, man. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one thing just in general that this has been a thing that's been going on. But the fact that there very specifically was a moment in pop culture about this with Moonlight and with the discussion yeah. around that film about how it shot black people and how the history of camera work prior to that and not like across the board, but just predominantly across the board was Again, like you said, it's racist in effect. It doesn't mean like the cameraman necessarily has, you know, a white robe back at home. It's just the fact that everything in essentially Western society is geared towards white people in every way. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is just no getting around that. And there was a huge moment. Like I remember at least reading eight, seven to eight pieces into 2016 or 2017, whenever Moonlight came out, specifically about the camera technology that, oh God, what's... um. Uh, Barry Barry Jenkins, I believe, is the yeah. director for uh, Moonlight. Um, and by the way, you should see Moonlight. You should watch uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, which I honestly kind of even like more than Moonlight. Um, but both fantastic <laughs> works. And they are shot beautifully. And they shoot, they're shooting the people that are there as opposed to, you know, just like a nebulous idea that an actor is going to fill the space that I'm going to shoot, yeah. Um, yeah. which I think is what you're getting at. Yeah. Well, you know, so I've been I've been equally laughing and kind of screaming at the TV for the past couple of months because there's um, a, a new Google Pixel phone coming out. Right. And the way that they're selling this is uh, it's like the Google Pixel color. Now we can take pictures of black people. Right. And they're like 
they're they're marketing this in a way that's like, oh, look, like, isn't this really good now that we finally like developed the technology so that black people can actually show up in the pictures that they take on their mobile phone? And I'm like, this is fucking bleak. Like what they're really saying is, yeah, our shit for the past 30 years has been horrifically racist and we didn't really care about it until this point. And like, obviously, no marketing team is going to put that on their 30 second ad like pre-real ad or whatever. Um, but like there is such like an inherent kind of grimness to this 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 kind of uh, quote unquote progress that's being made. And like the fact that, you know, we haven't even really gotten that moment for like TV or streaming in general um, that Google Pixel is just now getting. I'm like, God, we've got like the, the road. The road really does go ever on and on. And it's a fucking bleak one. Yeah, it's like at this point when Marvel says, oh, now we have our first South Asian superhero or our first Latin uh, superhero, and it's like 29 different projects into the MCU 15 years after you started it. Like, <laughs> yeah. at the point that you're saying this now, it's actually an own goal as opposed to like a victory for diversity or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's it's incredible that they're highlighting that their own sh- shortcomings in some of this. Yeah. Uh, just to really quick wrap up the episode proper. So essentially, um, with the new Minori in charge, they, for the time, beat back the orcs. They take Adar captive. They take a fair amount of orcs captive, it seems like, as well. Um, it looks like they set up like big benches for a Midsommar feast <laughs> in the middle of it, which I thought was <laughs> kind of funny. Or it reminded me of M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, which is a movie I love. I know a lot of people don't, but I love it. Yeah. Um, so what happens is Waldrig, um, he goes and, uh, I'm not tr- I'm trying to pick up on a metaphor in, uh, Emily's notes here, but he goes to return the master sword to its pedestal. Essentially. <laughs> um, he had the real blood sword that Adar had given him before the new Minorians arrive. He sticks it into somewhere. Um, I'm sure it was important. I'm sure the episode told me, and I will just fall on this, fall on that sword, fall on the blood sword and say, <laughs> I did not pick up where, um, but he sticks it in. And what happens is it unleashes a series of underground flooding um and i think it might have been deliberate like the orcs were the the orc tunneling was to set off this cataclysmic event of sorts um and i don't know how fire and lava works so i have no idea and i don't care about the science of it but uh i just want to point out i was like oh is this how it happens oh Uh, okay wait i actually have to this is the one point where i'm going to come to the defense of the show because the pedants on reddit like first off fuck everybody on reddit all these people are morons but loads of them are like well water and lava don't cause volcanic reactions and actually you fucking moron that's one of the prevailing theories for why volcanoes explode and if you're gonna go post a thousand words on reddit about why this tv show sucks why would you pick the only reason that you were dead ass wrong about um this is not knowledge that anybody in day-to-day life should uh have except that i just watched uh werner herzog's into the inferno uh, like a week ago and that is included in there and when this happened on screen i was doing the leo dicaprio meme <laughs> pointing at the screen and i was like hey it's into the inferno yeah, and and to be clear, I probably should have known that too because I took a geology class on plate tectonics and volcanic <laughs> stuff in college. Uh, but but like even if I even if I didn't, it was just like that's fine. I can, yeah. I can believe that this is not a stretch for me in everything else that's going on. It was totally fine. Um, yeah. It did have a little bit of the flooding of Isengard visuals yeah. to it, like the way the water was flowing down and into the holes. But uh, it all kind of sets up. There is a mountain in the distance which has kind of been visual and background shots before but i feel like this is the first time it was really foregrounded even though it's still the background but like like 
pay attention to this mountain kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, we see the water go through all the tunnels that we'd seen before. We see Adar put his like ear to the ground to hear it and get happy. It reminds me a little bit of Aragorn at the beginning of Two Towers, hearing the pace of the Urukai quicken. And then, you know, the water pours into the magma pool that exists be- below the Oradruin. Is that yeah. how you say it? Yeah. Uh, and eventually it leads to a cataclysmic um, explosion of the volcano, a volcanic eruption, um, all sorts of soot and ash and smoke, you know, flying out everywhere. Um, I love that some guys are just getting murked by the falling debris as Galadriel <laughs> just standing there watching. Yeah. Um, I, it vaguely, it vaguely reminded of one of the worst movies I've ever seen, Batman vs Superman, <laughs> where um, they call Superman to Congress to like testify of whether he's you know a threat or a hero, and then someone, I assume Lex Luthor, planted bombs in the Senate and they blow up the entire thing, and Superman just kind of stands around and watches as everyone gets incinerated, and <laughs> it's just like a slow motion, everything's blowing up behind him, and he's just kind of looking around, which is what Galadriel's doing here. I yeah. think it chafes me more in Batman vs Superman because Superman is technically fast enough and strong enough to save everyone that's in that room before it blows up. But he just kind of watches and everyone's just dying. So it's funny watching Morphid Clark, uh, like staring ominously at the mountain exploding. Meanwhile, like characters in the background are just getting leveled by fiery rocks. Like that's cool. That's cool because it it is funny to me to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing that kind of cracked me up, right? So, like, um, when this whole thing goes and he puts his sword into this locking mechanism or whatever and turns it and everything goes to shit, it's like when you go out of Breath of the Wild, uh, like, out of the little, t- what is it, the Temple of Time, Temple of Resurrection and Breath of the Wild, and, and the game starts, uh, and one of the ways in which the game starts is all of these towers start popping up across, uh, like, across Hyrule, uh, and there's a guy in one of the towers uh, who was literally just standing above where that tower was buried when everything popped up and is now trapped at the top of that tower, and I just really like to imagine that there was some poor, like, geologist at the top of, like, Mount Doom or a druid who was, like, just doing a nice little surveying, maybe having a, a gander at the beautiful view around, and is now, like, trapped on the very top of Mount Doom, like, hey guys, what the fuck just happened to me uh waiting for link slash galadriel slash legolas slash whoever to come running up uh and then do a whole bunch of like uh hang glider record breaking uh feats for his entertainment yeah I, I actually i was hoping there would be um if you've ever seen the james bond movie you only live twice oh wait no if you've seen the simpsons episode with hank scorpio um <laughs> and i, I was kind of wishing there was like a bond super villain setting up like a secret base with like missiles up in that volcano and then nice. these orcs just completely fucked it up by blowing the top <laughs> off of it we are going to stop there before heading into some potential spoiler territory discussing things we may expect to come or just some things that emily wants to talk about if this is where you are getting off today, thanks for joining us. Support us at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you can get early access to episodes, bonus content, and your very own Middle Earth name, which we will read on air, such as... Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Wait, that's not the Middle Earth name, but that would have been really funny if it was. Uh, whose Middle Earth name is Lothaman of Polinka. Silent Spider, the guardian of Kirith Ungle, who is at the Revelator. Iwendel, a.k.a. Haley Glyphs. Aranro Minyatar, who is Matthew Abbott. Ithranor of Kolkarthad, who is Maddie Hugh. And that is our $10 patrons. Uh, today, we'd like to thank the following $5 patrons. Ariel Scotton, a.k.a. Revelliel of Arabost. And 
Bronwyn, which is actually our friend Bronwyn's actual name. Uh, we will get have a, possibly a different name for them in a future episode, but we're just going to calling them Bronwyn for now because her name is Bronwyn, so it works. <laughs> you can send us emails about the Rings of Power and Lord of the Rings, or just how much you love me and Emily at my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com. And my bro, my cat, my pod is our handle on all social media we're available at. So without further ado, our spoiler section. Secrets Hour on Watch. I feel like I should like compose a little jingle, except I can't read music and have no skill at singing. So imagine that I composed a jingle. Uh, Secrets Hour on Watch. Um, I feel like at this point where we're at, everybody else has been wiped out. And unless we get like a kind of uh, 11th hour Hail Mary pass from... Uh, from fuck who is it Celebrimber uh from Celebrimber as a secret Sauron uh, I think we're at the point now where we have to say it's probably Halbrand um you know there's the whole conversation that he has with uh Adar about how you've taken something from me and Adar's like was it one of your maidens was it a child and Halbrand is conspicuously silent and then later Adar is like uh I know Sauron's dead to Galadriel. He says, this, I know Sauron's dead because I was the one who killed him. Uh, and wow, wouldn't that be a really good reason to be mad at someone if uh, they killed you? Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and then, you know, there's the whole he's the king of the Southlands bit. Uh, I don't really think the show is narratively sophisticated enough to do a fake out like that. So I think we're probably just going to have him be Sauron. Uh, although if Celebrimber CPA does want to come in uh, and win this for us on Celebrimber is Sauron, I will be delighted. Yeah, um, I think he has to be the best option, at least at this point, especially with the smithing stuff we saw last episode, because that's very in character. Um, I think the only other candidate that still has some life to him is the stranger. But in terms like there are certain like world building bridges. I hope the show doesn't cross, but I have no guarantee that they wouldn't cross them. Um, I really just don't want secret Sauron to have met anything resembling a halfling. Yeah. Cause that's like kind of like one of the main parts of how Lord of the Rings works is that Sauron doesn't even know these things exist. Uh, maybe he loses his memory when he dies the first time, I don't know. Hmm. They can make up all sorts of bullshit, but I would just rather not have Secret Sauron touch the halflings, however they may be presented. So I think Calbrand's the best. I guess we should have mentioned in our recap that after the battle, he reluctantly takes the, like, accepts the title of King of the Southlands. He's wearing a pouch on the pouch that he's had all throughout the episode. It looked like he might have left it behind in the previous episode, but no, it was him that picked it up. Um, he's wearing it on his belt, which I think, uh, who notices it? Bronwyn does, I believe. Yeah. So it clearly means something, whether it's actually his or whether he's trying to usurp the kingship of the Southlands. Hard to say what that even implies because they haven't really laid out much in terms of a political reality here. Yeah, it's like being king of the Scots circa 900. Like, whoop de fucking do What do you have? Like, a couple villages and a couple crofters. Good. <laughs> Enjoy that. It'll be absolutely not at all productive for you. <laughs> the other topic we can talk about here real quickly is Udun, which gets gives both the episode its title name and is something that we've talked a lot of 
about a little bit in our geography of Mordor, and also because um, when Gandalf faces off with the Balrog um, in the Fellowship of the Ring, he calls him the Flame of Udun. So what specifically do you want to talk about with Udun today? Yeah, so, okay, so Udun is kind of interesting because it is, um, it is like, solidly in Mordor, so I think, you know, the the maps that they have been using to obscure slash uh, be like, hoo-hoo, trivia, um, for the previous couple episodes of this season that were like oh, kind of showing it as Mordor now confirmed this is Mordor and that the Southlands, as in Harad, uh, are not in fact the Southlands here, which is fine. That's okay. I will live. Um, so Udun itself is a valley in Mordor. Uh, it is between uh, Kirith Gorgor, which uh, like which we does get quite a bit of play in Lord of the Rings as as a story, uh, and uh, Karach Angren. Uh, Angren, you will note, uh, comes from the the Sindarin word Ang for for iron. Uh, in Sindarin, uh, Udun itself just means hell. Uh, so we have a very clear sense of where this area in particular is going, aka it's going to be the pits of the pits, Death Valley, if you will. Uh, and and I think one of the things that should be interesting in some ways, uh, if they execute this correct, is that they can find a way to shoehorn in environmental storytelling into this show. Uh, and it's something that Tolkien did really well. Um, and... Uh, you know, one of my kind of favorite bits of it is is when the fellowship are going down Anduin, and they see the brown lands uh, to their east, uh, and they have this conversation trying to figure out why why the brown lands look so fucked up, like what has happened to them, and, and the kind of conclusion they come to is fuck knows none of us know why it looks this fucked up uh, and the same can be really said about all of mordor you know once you get past the the kind of explicit answer of well sauron's there and sauron has fucked up stuff um you know they could have a really fun way of saying well how specifically did it become this fucked up uh if we refer back to our sort of knowledge of volcanoes uh, thank you to Werner herzog uh you know volcanic ash is a, an incredible fertilizer and it, it makes for really really healthy and really really productive soil so how do we get this volcano erupting um, and instead of it becoming this very fruitful uh, and uh, like uh, important agricultural site like Indonesia is, um, how does it end up instead this kind of hellish wasteland? And if the show decides to to try and answer that question, that'll be a, a big dub, I think, overall. Uh, so hopefully, we'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed on that, that this is where this is going. But yeah, this is really kind of the, the literal and figurative low point of Middle Earth and its history. Yeah, no, that's actually great. And those are things that I would legitimately welcome this show playing with those ideas more so than what Galadriel was up to or what Elrond was up to at any one point. If it was all about the Brownlands and Entwives and stuff like that that are kind of open-ended questions and they can just exist in corners of the Middle-earth Earth lore and mythology as opposed to trying to like rewrite swaths of it in popular consciousness, I think I would get behind the show a lot more. Yeah. One of my kind of big questions here, and, and it's, you know, part part of it is me kind of sniping at the show uh, for not having read the appendices. And, and part of it is actually a genuine interest. It's um, now that they have established that Numenor is involved in Mordor, and I guess this is kind of part and parcel of their condensed timeline. I am actually very interested to know what happens to the actual Southlands, which is Harad. Um, because Harad in the history of Numenor is this crucial site of colonization. It is where they capture Sauron in the story, in the appendices and in the Silmarillion. Um, and it is also the site of, uh, you know, 
the the birth of the Black Numenorians, uh, who later become the the sort of higher dream and the people who uh, attempt to fuck around in the internal politics of Gondor, causing a couple civil wars, and also later become the kind of uh, literally the Southern Front uh, uh, pushing in uh, on the words of Sauron against Gondor and all the free peoples of Middle Earth, um, and. So they haven't really dealt with that. They've named Mordor the Southlands and and in doing so have kind of accidentally erased the actual Southlands, which is Harad. Um, and I will be really interested to see if they address that in any way. Um, and if in addressing that, they deal with the fact that um, Numenor needs to, well, I guess not needs to, because if this is divorced from the books, then whatever. But like Numenor ought to have a whole bunch of colonies in Middle Earth right now, including Harad, but also in Dol Amroth, which is the southern part of Gondor, within Gondor itself, within Arnor, and how they are going to address this now that they've sort of established this Numenorean presence of 500 men uh, in Mordor, uh, assuming they would have had to, you know, sail probably into the Bay of Belfalis and then ride like north and west from there via uh, Athelion and then cutting through. And they mention as well, sorry, this is this is uh, hitting something for me. They, they mentioned the, the Ethel Arnon, which means the mountains of Arnon. Uh, and in in um, in Lord of the Rings, that is named as Emin Arnon. And that is a, the central kind of belt of Athelion. It's where where Faramir uh, and Eowyn go live. And it's where the, the sort of stewards of Gondor had their sort of home base before they moved to Minas Tirith full time. Um, and they name it as Ethel Arnon uh, instead of Emin Arnon. So they've they've upgraded it from, from hills to mountains. And I'd like to know if they're going to play with that at all, if they're going to say that, you know, something happens in, in Gondor and in this land that takes these mountains down to literal hills. And if so, are they going to deal with the people that already lived in that area these are all the kind of questions I have now. And I'm also, it's also just now occurring to me in real time that this is not the last episode of the season, uh, that there are still two more. So maybe we'll get an answer before the season's out. God, why is this not their last episode? This seems like a, okay, whatever. That aside, that's my kind of hopes and dreams for the future. Yeah, I'll just say I also have hopes and dreams for the future <laughs> that these there are things in the show that can theoretically be corrected if, you know, they have some savvy people uh, behind the camera and in the writer's room. And I, I don't really love TV shows like taking like the entire bandwidth of Internet criticism to heart. No, um, but I definitely think there are things that they could look at how they've done stuff and maybe just like I think some simple pacing and like kind of shrinking down like they spent a lot of time in Numenor and it was clearly now just to essentially kill time to build to this. Yeah. Um, because it felt like the Aaron Deer stuff was ready to get to this battle at the end of like the first couple episodes that dropped. Yeah. But they had, they felt the need to show us with uh, Galadriel fighting like eight dudes every episode, which was very important for the storytelling. Yeah. I hope they take some cues unironically. I'm not even just sort of memeing Andor at this point, but Tony Gilroy in the, in the press leading up to uh, the release of Andor said very clearly, you know, I have a plan for these two seasons of Andor that I've been given. And the plan is season one, uh, which is 12 episodes, is going to take place five years before uh, Rogue One takes place. And then season two is going to be the four years leading up to Rogue One. And each uh, year of time that lapses there is going to be dealt with in a three season arc. And each three, season, three episode arc, rather, is going to be helmed by a different director. So there's a very distinct look and feel. Um, and you know that each year has changed because certain things about the show will have changed, but the actual guiding logic of the show will remain the same. Um, and that kind of forward thinking and strategic thinking about how to tell a story and, and what the correct venues and tools you have available to tell a story are is the kind of thing that I would like to see with uh, a show that has a guarantee 
made five seasons and spinoffs. Um, there is there has never been a better time to think strategically about what you are doing because you have that certainty of knowing that you will get all five seasons. Um, and I would like to see them kind of go back to the drawing board and and, and really actually for, for realsies this time, think about what they are doing instead of thinking about uh, what would look good. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get access to special bonus content, which we talked about a little bit earlier. You can also find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers and A Song of Ice and Fire slash House of the Dragon over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And that's me, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I've been Emily, also known as J.R. Tweedin, which is where you can find me on Twitter chasing a massive steampunk robot chameleon around the caldera of Mountain Doom. Oh, we love that reference. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethraglier, and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. <laughs>